Welcome to the Eric Erickson Show podcast, Hour One. Hello, America. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the nation. The phone number is 877-973-7425. If you want to be on the program, one moment, please. (laughs) I guess I hit the button and suddenly so there's in radio, there's the audio that is transmitted to you and there's the audio you're transmitting to others both of which you hear in your ear and for reasons unbeknownst to me, but it had to be me because I'm the only one in the studio. I cranked up the headphone volume and was about to blow up my eardrum hearing my own dulcet tones in my voice. Now that's better. So we can move on. As I was saying, the phone number 877-973-7425. If you're on the recipe list, I just sent out a link to They're all past recipes, but all the stuff that I cook on the front porch, on Sunday nights for when people come over to watch football and the like. With, with the final game of the season this Sunday, you have the list of, of things to choose from. Uh, if you want it, just text the word recipe to 33777. So you got the ham and cheese sliders, French style. I make them all the time. They're super easy. Takes 30 minutes. Jerk chicken legs, chicken tacos, fried shrimp tacos, carne asadas, bacon-wrapped jalapenos, smoked wings, margaritas, you get it, and, and then just just scroll through the list. There's lots of other stuff you can choose from, but those are the ones that I regularly make on the front porch. So you will be stocked up for the game on Sunday, the final game. Oh, that reminds me, uh, Philip and people who are listening, you need to come over at 6.30 instead of 7.30 so you're there for when the game starts. Um, that That's actually for the invite, not for all of you, not for all of you, just the people who were previously given the invitation to come. Um, now... Don't email me. You know who you are. the invitation because you wouldn't come. Uh, now, I got to begin with a story that I thought was well done and, and they had moved on with the economy. We've talked about this a lot. And, and I, you know, I'm rarely one of those people who says there should be a law. There should be a law. Well, there probably we need to have some sort of action on this. Uh, So this particular story comes regionally from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. It had been covered by the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, and then there were a series of stories that essentially the phenomenon was going away. But the phenomenon was going away, but it was going away in the the upper Midwest and New England and the Mid-Atlantic. Now it's moved to the south. And it's become a problem. Uh, And so kudos to uh, the Atlanta Journal for covering a story that is a national story that had faded away, except it didn't really fade away. It just went to where the economy was still hopping. And in the South, in Georgia, in Florida, in Texas, in Tennessee, in the Carolinas, this is still a problem. It's a problem in New England and the mid-Atlantic states still, but it's a really new phenomenon uh, in, in the South. Let me just read you the opening. No, 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 no. I'm not going to tell you. You got to follow along with me here. You'll you'll get it real quick. No one would buy Dalee Lohman's South Florida townhouse when she first moved to Atlanta in 2008, not at the height of the housing crash, and not for anything close to what she paid in 2005. So she short-sold it, eating the loss of the mortgage. Since then, she had a kid, got married, got divorced, left Atlanta, came back. Today, Lohman has two master's degrees, works in government consulting, and is chairwoman of the DeKalb County Elections Board. She's also pre-approved to buy a home. 
but the ghosts of the housing crisis aren't done haunting her. Instead of building generational wealth through homeownership, Lowman has been thwarted at every turn by out-of-state investors who are profiting off the same crisis that wiped out the equity in her home 15 years ago. Metro Atlanta has become ground zero for the investor takeover of the American dream. Long the bedrock of family wealth for the middle class, single-family homes have been snatched up in the thousands by private equity firms and publicly traded companies, converted into rental properties, and bundled into complex investment vehicles. These firms did not create Atlanta's affordability crisis. A generational housing shortage, inflated construction costs, and a surge in consumer demand have all contributed to the historic rise in prices. But a growing body of evidence leaves little doubt that the flood of cash from investors has exacerbated it. They go after every listing under $500,000. It's like clockwork, says Maura Neal, a realtor in Alpharetta. The property gets listed and sight unseen. They make offers within an hour. A lot of people come to the country to live the American dream. When Herbert Hoover was president uh, back right before the Great Depression, one of his campaign mottos was a car in every garage and a chicken in every pot. And part of the idea, part of the ideal of the American dream is that you can become a homeowner. If you are non-white in particular, one of the best ways to create intergenerational wealth is through property that is passed down generation to generation. You buy a piece of property and over time there's, there is a precise pool of property. Barring a volcanic, or a volcanic eruption that creates new land, there is no more new land. There is land that may not be sold right now. There is land that can be subdivided, but the geographic square footage of land doesn't change. It is a precise known quantity. And over time, because of the rules of scarcity and the laws of inflation and economics, the land value goes up. What was 11,000 becomes 20,000, becomes 50,000, becomes 200,000. My wife and I bought our home, our first house, was $110,000. Three bedroom, two bathroom, half acre, $110,000. House had been built in the early 1950s. And we sold the house to get out of it when we bought our new house. We sold it for like $60,000. That's, uh, no, let's say we have $40,000. You know, I told my wife she wanted a motorcycle and we'd had this house and it set vacant for about five years. And I said, look, if you sell the house, you get the motorcycle. She, we only owed about $40,000 on this house. And she f- called one of those, we buy ugly houses people. She saw the sign on the side of the road, sold the house. I was like, dead gummit, I got to buy you a, buy you a motorcycle. I mean, had a house sold like three days. I was impressed. Our current house, we bought our current house uh, for about $200,000. Uh, 
it's now appreciated in value significantly more than that. We have built up a lot of equity in the house and we've refinanced over time and things like that, but we bought the house. We got a good deal on it because it had set vacant for some time and it was bought by a company who, a relocation company. But I mean, we bought our house and we bought it for right around $200,000. And it's got, uh, what, uh, five bedrooms and four and a half bathrooms. We got a good deal on it. I don't, I'm not going to lie, but it has appreciated significantly in value. We've built up equity. And if and when you build up equity, you can pass that on to your children. I worked a case, the very, very last case actually that I went to court over when I was a lawyer was a case in Taylor County, Georgia. Taylor County, Georgia is a very rural part of uh, middle Georgia along the Flint River. The best gun store in America is in Taylor County. It's a Napa Auto Parts store, and you go to the back of the store, and it's the biggest gun store you'll ever see. They had a fifty caliber Barrett in there for sale a while back. It's an incredible, incredible gun store. Might need a road trip this weekend. But... Uh, this case I had was the property of a former slave. Now, this this is the sort of stuff you sometimes deal with in, in the southern United States. A former slave buys over time through hard work a couple of hundred acres of land. He died in 1905. Lived a long life. Been a slave as a boy, freed after the Civil War worked very hard, and he saved for this land, acquired several hundred acres. The family, given the time, who could blame them? They were afraid that white settlers in the area would steal the land. So they kept the land in probate court. They kept it in probate court, and here I come in 2005, literally 100 years later, it's still in probate court. And part of the family wanted their acreage. It was a husband and wife. They had moved to Taylor County from out of state. They were heirs. They wanted their land, and they wanted the case resolved in probate court so they could get what they were entitled. And we won the case. The case should never have been stayed in probate court, but given the history of the South, sympathetic probate judges over time just kind of turned a blind eye to it. The, all the family was allowed to use it. It was hunting land. This particular part of the family wanted to build a house. They were able to build their house. They were able to build their house on land that was valued at far more than it had been in 1905. They got like a quarter acre of land, built the house. And now they have a home that they can pass on to their children. It will go up in value. Corporations in the United States are buying up every available house under $500,000 and converting a nation of homeowners into a nation of renters. They are depriving you and me and everyone else of the ability to acquire and build up intergenerational wealth. They are particularly impacting non-white citizens of this family who typically build their equity through home ownership. This is a really bad development. And it had been going on nationwide and kind of slipped under the radar, but now it is massively growing. It is Blackstone. It is BlackRock. It is other groups out there that are doing this. They are converting uh, communities into rental communities. 
people buy into communities. They buy their homes and communities and their next door neighbors turn into itinerant tenants who come in and out, who move, who don't take care of the property because it's not their property. It degrades the value of the, of the, of the area. Uh, I, I really, this is one of those areas where I think there do need to be laws. I'm not opposed to companies buying land and, and buying houses and, and turning people into renters. But I think neighborhoods need to be able to protect themselves in particular because you move into a neighborhood and suddenly the neighborhood converts itself to Section 8 housing or converts itself into a bunch of rental units. It degrades your investment in your house. It harms your equity by what they do. If we want to foster the American dream for everyone, we got to be willing to make the commitment that it should be individual homeowners in America, and they're the ones who buy the houses. I don't know if it's sustainable, but I do think it's bad. I actually do think this is bad. The industry, they say it's a myth that investor activity has priced Americans out of homes. They say it's not true, but it is. In fact, what's so interesting is that many of these entities, they're not willing to sell to individuals. This is captured in this reporting from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In public statements, industry officials deny they're a threat to homeownership, calling it a myth. David Howard, CEO of the National Rental Home Council, told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that housing markets dynamics are too complicated to come to a consensus on whether investors are affecting home ownership. The reality is that Americans need more housing, whether that's owned, owner-occupied housing, whether it's apartment housing, whether it's single-family rental housing. When you have a market like Atlanta characterized by lots of people moving there, companies expanding, you're going to get more demand for rental housing, Howard said. Someone else looked into buying a home on Salem Trail in Atlanta, but the previous property manager said flat out, we do not sell the property. Property records tell an interesting story. LLC after LLC is willing to sell the property, but not to families. One private equity firm flipped it to another and another. With each purchase, the home value rised, rose. With each subsequent owner, maintenance got worse and rent went up. These companies are depriving Americans of the ability to build on the American dream. And I actually do think this is a populist area where Republicans and Democrats could find some common ground and should push to cut this sort of stuff out. Uh, Americans should be prioritizing home ownership of individuals, not private equity firms buying up all the houses and forcing all of us to be a nation of permanent renters. That's a terrible, terrible trend line for the country if we allow this to go on. If you own a small to medium-sized business that kept employees on payroll through COVID, you may have a big cash refund waiting for you. The employee retention credit is a tax credit of up to $26,000 per employee, and now more businesses than ever qualify. The experts at RefundsPro.com specialize in cutting through the red tape of qualifying for this government program. Most of their refunds are over $100,000. Even businesses that have received PPP funds may be eligible, and there are absolutely no fees unless you receive a refund. There's no reason not to apply. If your business experienced shutdowns, limited capacity, supply, 
supply chain challenges, or even reduced revenue due to COVID, you likely qualify. RefundsPro.com has already helped hundreds of businesses, so don't lose the refund you're owed by missing the deadline. Get started today with the free five-minute questionnaire at Refunds with an S, RefundsPro.com. That's Refunds with an S, Pro.com. I do think it's notable that all the major companies pushing ESG are the ones buying up all the houses to keep you from uh, being anything other than a permanent tenant. I, so uh, we had a caller. He didn't stay on the line. If you want to call in, and, and it is a free-for-all today, so you can call in about topics not in the list of stuff I was going to talk about. The phone number is 877-973-7425. But we had a caller call in, wanted to know, uh, is this where the legislature should get involved? Yeah, I think so. I don't think that you want to preclude companies from being able to buy houses. What I do think you need to do is is do a couple of things. One is uh, pass a law that says they can't decline to sell to individuals. Two, homeowners groups and neighborhoods should be able to prevent through the bylaws of the homeowners association uh, companies from buying up the houses and converting them to rental properties. I think you you need to do those things because typically what happens here is in new developments, companies come in and they buy up all the houses and any of you should know, and maybe you don't know, maybe you've never had this experience, but a renter does not take care of property typically in the same way that a homeowner does. Typically, a renter also has to rely on a landlord to do repairs around the home. And the renter doesn't get money back in many cases, uh, depending on the terms of the, of the lease, if they do things around the house. So there's no incentive to. So houses tend to degrade more uh, when this sort of thing happens. Uh, let's see, Tony, I've only got about a minute and a half, but wanted to get to you. Tony. Oh, Hey, Eric, how are you? Good. How are you? Got about a minute here, but wanted to get to you. Yeah. Just a quick thing from being a member of a homeowners association board. There are things that homeowners associations can do in their covenants to limit the number of rental properties they can have in their neighborhood. There were some changes that took effect in the state of Georgia in January of 21 that deal with grandfathering existing renters, but you can still make those changes and have a lot of impact on your local community. And even city councils and local governments can do a lot of things to restrict it. It doesn't have to be a congressional movement. Yeah, look, I, and I think it's got to be dealt with at a at a local level and a, at a state level, not a federal level. Tony, I appreciate the phone call. Uh, real quick, so Jim... Uh, was asked me down the line during commercial break, why Atlanta, why the South? It had been happening in other parts of the country, but as the economy has heated up in Texas, Georgia, Tennessee, Florida, and people are moving into those areas, that's where these groups have moved to very quickly to start buying up houses, knowing that people are coming. That's why you need to anticipate these things and make these changes. Y'all, I want to be real honest with you. Uh, I have looked, because you have asked me to look, for a reputable gold company that can give you advice and answer your questions that's not gimmicky. Like, for example, some of them do certificates, and some of them they try to rope you in with other stuff. You are interested in precious metals for your retirement savings uh, to ease the ebbs and flows of inflation and wild swings in the stock market 
Advantage Gold. Advantage Gold, that's who you want to call. Uh, Advantage Gold, I have looked into them. I have had them answer my questions. And it is not one of these gimmicky places. There aren't tricks. They really just want you to have a great experience learning how to be a gold investor. Give them a call, 800-450-2566, 800-450-2566. Tell them I sent you. You can get their free gold and IRA investment kit, but call them if you got questions. They're good people, 800-450-2566. Hello there. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the nation. The phone number is 877-973-7425. Uh, if you want to um, call in, you're more than welcome to. But I have a guest at the moment. Uh, I want to talk about hot air balloons and other things with my guest. Uh, that would be the senator from the great state of Florida, Marco Rubio. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Eric? I'm great. So let, let's before we talk about anything else, I want to get your take on uh, the the Chinese hot air balloon situation that yeah. we now know that they were. Uh, they had spy equipment, which, I mean, you could kind of hold the telescope or binoculars up and see they had solar panel arrays and the like there. But I, I just still find it curious that they waited for the whole thing to traverse the nation and then decided to catch it over the ocean. Yeah. Well, first of all, let me just say it, it is the first time we've seen it do what this one did. Um, we know they've been flying these for a while. It's not a very sophisticated technology in terms of flying. Uh, they've circumvented the globe a number of times, and, and and as part of that circumvention, you know, they're going down like the equator. You're going to pass briefly over a piece of this country, that country, the other country. But those were really test flights more than anything else. I know we've seen them active in the Pacific in the past, but this is the first time and the only time that we know of that one of these balloons has sort of entered the northwest quadrant of the well, went over Alaska, then entered the northwest quadrant of the United States, and then just basically cut a diagonal path right across the Midwest in the upper Midwest where we have places like Strategic Command and then exited out of the Atlantic. So they were aware that this thing was headed here as early as the, and at least the day before it actually entered the continental United States and made the decision at the time that they did not want to shoot it down. So uh, they were going to allow it to traverse and then, you know, deal with it later. So it's a collection platform. I mean, it has the advantage of it is it has persistence. It could sit over a target for a period of time because they can control it and it could take you know, live video, high-resolution imagery. It can collect electronic signals, you know, uh, and things of that nature that are being communicated. So it has value um, as part of an overall system, right? It's, you know, when you add in the satellites and everything else you have, it's just one more way of looking at things you're interested in in an adversary. Um, obviously, in, in this case, you know, it's pretty unprecedented, and, and you know, I, didn't, I don't think it was handled appropriately, and they could have stopped it, you know, from coming over the day before it actually ended. Well, and, you know, that's one of the things that, that strikes me about this is I had heard, I read that these balloons themselves don't have much of a radar signature, but when you're dangling that much spy equipment below it, it's going to light up a radar and that they caught it over the Pacific. Uh, they could have. And I mean, how do you respond to, I guess, sources of the Pentagon who say they wanted to study it and see what the Chinese were up to and could jam the signaling? <sighs> Well, I don't think that that's um, true, uh, frankly. I mean, that may be what they decided ultimately once the decision was made to let it come through, that that's what they would try to do after it. But um, I don't think the intelligence value of it is great in terms of watching it because, again, it's not, we know what it is, and it doesn't, it's not a very sophisticated uh, 
technology in terms of the flying, you know, the aeronautics of it. Look, I, I um, it is NORAD. Okay, let's talk about NORAD. NORAD's job is to protect the United States and Canada from incoming missiles and airplanes. That's what it's looking for. It is not looking for a balloon at 60,000 feet. That's just not what it's geared towards. And it wouldn't see it up until a certain point because, again, NORAD is watching. You know, the satellites are looking for launch indications from somewhere, but the NORAD is basically watching you know, the airspace of the United States and what's about to enter it. And it's certainly not looking for things flying that slow at 60,000 feet in a balloon. But we have other elements of the government that were aware of it and made NORAD and others aware of it. Um, and um, and so, you know, we've got, uh, you know, that, that's the work that, uh, that that needs to happen here moving forward is to make sure this doesn't happen again. Because, you know, I think that's been my question is what's the policy now moving forward the next time this occurs? Yeah, that, that, part of my concern, too, switching gears slightly on this, I, I put up a piece this morning, and I, I was talking to some folks last week and kind of got inspired by this idea. So the president is now saying, after a State of the Union address the other night, that he wants to repatriate into this country uh, not just um, production in, in, of infrastructure builds, but even the, the that the raw materials have to be made in the United States, which I know sounds popular, but... The, the expense goes up when we do these things. And I'm, I'm just kind of wondering, uh, instead of having everything made in China, which we're continuing to roar now in a geostrategic adversary, why aren't we as a government setting policies of uh, we can't onshore everything because costs go up so much, but we can offshore them to countries that want to be our allies and incentivize uh, a country like, for example, India, which wants to be an ally, letting them handle our offshore capacity instead of China. It just seems like we should be ally shoring instead of just offshoring to China stuff. Yeah. So look, at the end of the Cold War, uh, the decision was made that everybody thought, okay, history's over. We're going to integrate Russia and China into the Western liberal economic order. And that will make them more democratic. It'll make them play by rules and so forth. But there's a price to pay for that. You know, economics is a science, but it's it's not it's not a mathematical science because it involves human beings and human behavior and nation states. And one of the things that happens when efficiency kicks in, which is generally the right outcome, is you lose capabilities. And so in a time of conflict or pandemic, you start to realize that, yeah, it is cheaper to make some things in other countries, but it's really not a good idea not to be able to make it for ourselves, especially if our source is a potential adversary or, or an actual adversary. And the other is a, a huge imbalance. You know, the, the Western order, particularly the U.S., is very service-oriented, whereas Russia and China, that's why GDP numbers, I don't think, accurately capture the size of their economy. The Russians are very much built on raw material, you know, energy and food stuff, and the Chinese on export and industrial capacity, the ability to make things. And when there's a conflict in the world, the ability to make things and raw material is much more valuable than the ability to deliver food from an app uh, to someone's home. And and we learned that a little bit in the pandemic, but I, we're going to learn it in this new world. So I think your viewpoint is, yes, we should be engaged in reciprocal trade uh, with countries that make sense for both sides without diminishing our, our own key capacity in certain industries. Right. But it should be with allies. It should be with countries that are not trying to replace us on the global stage. It should be with countries that aren't going to start wars. You know, this notion that somehow two countries, because they have trade, will never get into conflict has been disproven repeatedly. World War II was fought by the biggest economic powers in the world. Uh, the Russians, it made no economic sense to invade Ukraine, but they did. The Chinese are conducting live fire exercises off the coast of Taiwan. 
um, and the Chinese, by the way, have no interest in integrating into a global trade system. Their interest is not just self-sufficiency, but world dependency. They want to dominate all the key industries of the 21st century so they can provide it not just for themselves, but also have the world depend on them for it. They think that'll give them the geopolitical leverage to supplant the United States. That's the reality, and we've got to wake up to it. And then it's had impacts, too. You know, when you get rid of manufacturing, you don't just get rid of an industrial capacity. You get rid of jobs that take generations and generations to replace, and it has a hollowing effect in communities, among families. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's deeply related to the opioid epidemic, to the lack of family formation, to community crumbling, and that's not good for a country. I mean, that becomes corrosive. So there's a lot here at play than just sheer numbers on a balance sheet that have to be taken into account when we make these decisions. So what did you think of the State of the Union address? Bizarre. <laughs> it was bizarre. And I don't say that. I mean, look, I'm a Republican. I said, of course, he's going to criticize Biden. But it was bizarre. A couple things. You know, on the one hand, I mean, he used numbers just aren't accurate when it comes to the debt and deficit. But the other is he then went out and basically promised how the U.S. government was now going to guarantee everything from, you know, how much airlines are going to charge you for bag fees. And, it, and all the way to, you know, universal pre-K and everything in between. That stuff costs a lot of money. So uh, And so you add all that up, and it, the two things don't – then he talks about we're going to get the money. And all of this, everything he talked about was all going to be paid for by billionaires and corporations. But here's the truth. If you took every penny of every billionaire in America that they make this year, it doesn't even make a dent on the debt the deficit. It doesn't generate nearly enough money. If you took all the money, and as far as corporations – you know. I don't, I'm not a big fan of big corporations and some of the things they've done, especially the multinationals that have no allegiance to America. But they don't, corporations don't really pay taxes. They pass it through. So in essence, if, if you raise their tax rate, they'll pay it. But they'll pay it by raising prices, by laying off workers, uh, by moving their location to some other wor- part of the world where they're not going to get taxed. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, it sounds really good, and I know that it's not, but it's just not true. And then, you know, the bizarre is things like, you know, he's beat – Again, I have my own problems with the pharmaceutical industry and how it works in general, but he's beating up on big pharma even as he is bragging about uh, uh, the vaccine that made them billions of dollars with the help of the U.S. government and with the help of his mandate. And, and likewise, you know, he talks about Paul Pelosi and what an attack on him, which I thought was terrible. But Brett Kavanaugh had an assassin step from his door. Didn't even mention that part when you talk about political violence in America. So it was bizarre in the sense that you know, he almost sounded oblivious to the reality, not to mention him saying that his border uh, plan that he announced in January is working great. We just had 130, about over 100, maybe it was 113, some people, uh, people from Haiti arrive in, in the Florida Keys yesterday morning. And the video's out there. I put it up on wow. Twitter. People, you know, it's so it's it's almost oblivious to the things that really matter and a focus. And, and one more point. I know I'm talking about a lot, but one more you asked me about my observation. He deliberately, if you notice, he avoided all the wokers. There was no talk of pregnant men. There was no talk of, you know, was, you know, he talked about a few things, but he didn't get into it. It doesn't reflect the policies of this administration who are using all the levers of the federal government to force every industry they have their claws in, whether it's finance, whether it's banking, uh, whatever, academia, to adopt everything from radical energy policies to radical cultural and social policies not to mention the radicals he's appointed the key executive branches. But he, he, he really didn't want to talk about that stuff. He sort of left that out because he's pivoting to general election mode, and he knows that stuff's not popular. Yeah, it, it, you know, I want to go back to what you were talking about on the, the debt and spending solution. I was talking to a former vice chair of the Federal Reserve this weekend, and 
he was talking about he worked in the Bush administration and would regularly get hauled to Congress and excoriated for the national debt when it was 35% of GDP. Now it's 125% of GDP, and it doesn't seem like uh, most people in Washington care that this is becoming a serious national security issue, depriving us of about an extra trillion dollars a year just in interest payments to, that we can't fund defense and other things with. Yeah, you know, it's like when you get one of these bills in the mail and you don't want to pay it, it's a lot of money. You know you're going to have to pay it, but you don't want to pay it. And so you just sort of pretend. And, if you know, every day, as long as they don't send you that follow-up letter saying, hey, you better pay us next week or we're going to take away your car or whatever, you just ignore it till the end. And I think the debt is much like that. that. The truth of the matter is that what is driving our debt and will continue to drive it is mandatory spending, things that the government, that the law says we have to spend, okay? Medicaid if you qualify for Medicaid, the federal share of it, you have to spend it. Same with Social Security, same with Medicare. These are programs people have paid into. But the reality of it is those programs are not taking in. Like the Medicare payments of today's workers and the Social Security payments of today's workers is not generating enough revenue for what is coming out. So at some point, if you're spending more than you're taking in, you don't have to be an economics major or even an accountant to realize you're going to get yourself, you're going to have to borrow money from somewhere to make up the gap. And that gap, that gap is growing every year. And so those programs at some point are going to have to be systemically reformed. They call it cutting. I'm not talking about cutting. I, I don't think we should make any changes to people that are about to retire or are retired. But I do think younger workers, people in my generation and so forth, are going to have to accept some adjustments or there won't be a Social Security or Medicare. And I've said this for a long time, but no one wants to touch it. And you can't do it without presidential leadership. It takes the president to lead it. And look, presidents in neither party have really wanted to deal with it. So, um, But you're right. I mean, if you don't do touch that, that's 85% of our spending. All right, last question for you. Who do you think wins the Super Bowl? It's a good game. I'm excited. You know, usually these games will feature a team that got hot at the end. These two mm-hmm. teams would be consistently good. The difference is probably, I think, the Eagles' defense is better than the Chiefs. Um, two different brands of how they built their way there. You know, the Eagles used, they have a rookie contract quarterback, so they have a lot of money to go out and get free agents and buy people. Kansas City actually has a big contract quarterback, so they had to go out and bargain hunt. They have a bunch of rookies starting in the, a lot of rookies starting, a lot of rookies in the secondary. So I just think the advantage is to the Eagles because the, the Chiefs have a, a better, uh, the, the Eagles have a better defense. Well, I mean, either way, Philadelphia is probably going to get burned. The <laughs> I mean, in celebration or in protest, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I hope, I hope not. I hope not. I hope not. But I, I know there's, there's going to be greasing phone poles starting today. So, look, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. My best to your family as well. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Take care. Senator Marco Rubio from Florida uh, joining me. You know, he always lights up when you ask him about football. Um, he, he's a huge football fan. Sorry the Dolphins won't be there, those of you in Florida, or the Buccaneers for that matter. All right. We got to move on. Patriot Mobile, I got to tell you about them. Uh, Patriot Mobile around the country, you can move your cell phone service to them. We may need to move Philip over to them, Charlie. Um, they use the same cell towers everybody else uses, and you get guaranteed great service to from them. You can get free activation with my name by going to patriotmobile.com slash Eric, E-R-I-C-K. Someone actually sent me an um, email the other day that they were using my name somewhere and they were misspelling it. It's like E-R-I-C-K. Same at Patriot Mobile. You can also call them, 972-PATRIOT. They have 100% U.S.-based customer service. You can call them and talk to them if you don't believe me about the discounts. You're a veteran, a first responder, an NRA member, a teacher. Uh, you get great discounts at Patriot Mobile. If you've got multiple lines in your house because your kids are at the age where they need a cell phone and you're still paying for it, well, patriotmobile.com slash Eric. 
If you don't believe me on the service, go to patriotmobile.com slash Eric. Put in your home address. They'll zoom in all the way to your house. You can see how strong the service is. 5G, data voice, they got it all. And they take a portion of their profits and they give it to the conservative causes you care about. That's what sets them apart. Patriotmobile.com slash E-R-I-C-K. Hello there, it is Eric Erickson here. The phone number 877-973-7425. And do not forget to text DATA to 33777. Sign up for the email. I want to go to the phones. I want to go to Patrick. Welcome to the show, Patrick. How are you? I'm fine, Eric. How are you this afternoon? Great. What's going on? Great. Uh, really quickly, Maharishi would be very, very proud. Appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. I wanted to talk about this rental scenario I'm here in Atlanta that you talked about. There's one key thing that's missing with these corporations. They're buying these houses up for cash. I'm sure you probably know. They don't have to put 20% down, and they're not going to be affected by a 7% interest rate, and they become rentals. The problem is is that they buy a house for $200,000. A fair rent, let's just say, would be 1000 or $1,500 a month. We're going, well, you want 2000 You and I would not rent that house. But somebody that would rent that house can move 10 or 12 people into it. This is no exaggeration. They're paying $50 a month, and they're able to get insane rents for a house at the, that you and I would not rent for three or $4,000 for a 1,000-square-foot house. You understand this is going on, right? Oh, yeah. And that is the key thing behind the rentals. And for homeowners, their only fight back is, and I'm a builder here, the only fight back is you have to get the code enforcement. You have to get the municipalities. The municipalities will do nothing about seven cars in the front yard parked in mud, okay? The traffic going in and out of a 1,000-square-foot house is insane. They'll do nothing unless you complain and complain and complain, and hopefully that municipality will at least – stand behind a little bit of their ordinances and their codes. But the true reality is this for these companies, and this by tens of thousands, they're able to charge rent on a property. You and I would say, that's crazy. I'm not paying that. They don't have a problem because they're going to find somebody that will move X amount of people in because for them, the rent is $50 a month by 10 or 12. And that's kind of my point. And it's destroying neighborhoods. We see neighborhoods that a few years ago before COVID were beautiful. Now they're nothing but it, I mean, the traffic is so thick, mm-hmm. the number of people that are living in these houses, and it kills their own property value, but they don't care. They're making their money today. They don't yep. care what happens 20 years from now at that property. You know what's going to happen. They don't live there. You, yeah. you know, it, they, don't it, live, they don't live within 100 miles of these houses. They don't care, but they're right. making a hell of a lot of money right now. Yeah, I mean, there's got to be I – mean, this is one of those populist issues that I, I actually care about passionately about Patrick that that's highly informative thank you very much have a great weekend uh they're really this is one of those areas where Republicans and Democrats alike should be able to find common ground uh and and step in on this because into Patrick's point yeah they're they're charging exorbitant rent and you pack a bunch of people in these houses uh they've got no desire to care for the house the landlords don't either it degrades property values and ruins other people's equity in the process when we come back, we got to switch gears. The FBI takes on the Catholic Church until it doesn't.